Ever wonder what history's most famous and infamous people would say if you asked them for their side of the story? Well, this is it. You're listening to Hindsight, an original podcast by Al Jazeera. I'm Charles Dance. In this episode, we meet Indira Gandhi. Born into a family dynasty, the first female Prime Minister of India was as sure of herself as she was driven. But in hindsight, her political maneuverings and quest for power would end up getting her killed. This is a dramatized series based on historical events that resurrect some of the world's most memorable figures. Hindsight. You've heard of them, but now it's time you hear from them. It's the 31st of October, 1984. A woman is walking down the path from her bungalow to her office. She's wearing sandals, a saffron-colored sari, her hair neatly arranged. Her bodyguards are standing by, as always. How are you both? But she doesn't know she's in danger. The two men ordered to protect her want revenge. A few months earlier, on her orders, the Indian military had launched Operation Blue Star against the Golden Temple in Punjab, with deadly consequences. The woman who's just been assassinated is Indira Gandhi, India's first female prime minister. Indira Gandhi is known today as one of India's most controversial political figures. She was an astute and formidable woman whose political ambitions were cultivated from childhood. Born into a powerful family dynasty in 1917, Indira was the only child of India's first prime minister, Jawaharlal Nehru. She followed him into politics and became known as an iron fist in a velvet glove, earning her comparisons with British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. Once she was in power, she clenched it resolutely for herself and her family. In India, you were either with Indira Gandhi or against her. I was born in my grandfather's house in a room just across the courtyard from his own. The Anand Bhavan, which means the House of Happiness, was a stunning two-story home in Allahabad with balconies wrapped around both floors. It is where our family, the Nehru's, grew up. Indira Gandhi was born into wealth and privilege. The Anand Bahavan was an impressive place to grow up, as spacious as an English estate, with servants, a huge library, and silver cutlery and porcelain to dine on. I came into the world on the 19th of November, 1917. But not everyone found it a joyous occasion. Poor. It happened. My grandmother was devastated that I wasn't a boy, which infuriated my grandfather. This daughter of Jawaharlal may prove better than a thousand sons. I would prove him right. Both he and my father were overjoyed when I arrived. And when one is born a girl in India, that is not guaranteed. My grandfather named me Indira Priyadarshini. Indira after his late mother. And Priyadarshini meaning beautiful to behold. Indira got a head start compared to other girls born in this time. She was an only child in an affluent household heavily influenced by British culture. Her grandfather, Martilal Nero, had sent his only son, Indira's father, 
Jawaharlal to study in England. Her mother Kamala came from conservative Kashmiri family with a traditional Hindu household, which didn't always sit well with some relatives. My aunts didn't appreciate her ways, taunting her for secluding herself to pray. But she remained dedicated to everything Indian. Once a relative gave me a beautiful dress with the finest French embroidery. No, Indira. But my mother refused it. She told her that we only wore homespun khadi in this family. She shouldn't copy everything you do. I hated it when they spoke to her like that. The decision should be yours, Indira. I stood by my mother and refused to take that French dress. And then I was ridiculed for carrying around my favorite doll which was not made in India. I will take back the dress. But what's the difference? You and that doll are inseparable. For days on end, or was it weeks? I was torn between the love of my imported doll and duty towards my country. I suppose this is when I became truly aware of my conscience and duty. My father and grandfather were nationalists and close to Mahatma Gandhi. They believed in his movement for Indian independence from British rule. After the Jallianwala Bagh massacre in 1919, I watched them stoke a bonfire with their Savile Row suits in protest. No more foreign-made goods, particularly British ones. And so I knew what I had to do. Of course, I was terribly upset, but it had to be done. I turned my beloved doll to ash. To this day I hate to strike a match. This symbolic act and the intense political conversations at home influenced her to no end. It was impossible for her to escape it. Her father was arrested by the British government numerous times for his political views and protests. He was absent for much of her childhood. My mother also fought fiercely for independence. So when my father was in prison, she took part in protests and spoke out publicly for our rights. But loneliness became my biggest companion. I moved schools frequently. I hated most of them and ended up being homeschooled. That came to an end when we all moved to Europe for extensive periods while my mother received medical treatment for her tuberculosis. In 1929, Indira Gandhi's father became president of the Congress party and the family was separated once again. Indira stayed with her mother while he worked in Allahabad with the Nehru committee to write a new constitution for a new India. He would write to me constantly. His letters always started the same way, answering a question I had asked him months or even years before. It was his way of correcting my British education. If we want to know something about the story of this world of ours, we must think of all the countries and all the peoples that have inhabited it, and not merely of one little country. Your loving father, Papu. And with each letter, a political seed was sown. By 1930, all over India, people were protesting against the salt taxes and foreign clothes being imported into the country. No, 
टू योर क्लोथ आपके कपड़े नहीं चाहिए मम लेट मी कम प्लीज वी नीड एवरीबॉडी देर आई वॉज ट्वेल्व एंड टू यंग टू ज्वाइन द कांग्रेस पार्टी बट वॉट डज वन डू वन फेस्ड विद एन ऑब्स्टिकल वन परसिवियर्स I found a group of children and we distributed leaflets, cooked meals for the Congress, and couriered their top secret messages. Despite her tender age, Indira founded her own political assembly called the Vana Sena, the Monkey Brigade. Tens of thousands of young revolutionaries would go on to join. We did whatever we could do for India's self-determination. We made flags, addressed envelopes. We took our risks. but it was worth it it was necessary she was cutting her political teeth nothing and no one would sway her as the people of india would one day find out my whole family kept pushing and pushing for progress arrests were commonplace when i was a little girl both my father and grandfather were arrested by the british in 1921 they'd spent years in and out of jail My grandfather had one last stint in prison in 1931. They let him go because he was sick. The British government also released my parents and Mahatma Gandhi from prison in January that year. They went to the Anand Bhavan to see my grandfather. He died not long after. I was devastated. But she would have had to swallow her pain. Her teen years were hardly private with the press and other freedom fighters constantly following her family. By the mid-1930s, Jawaharlal Nehru was considered to be the natural successor to Mahatma Gandhi, and young Indira would have to accept the attention. Tragically, she'd also have to accept what came next. In 1935, I traveled to Germany with my mother. Tuberculosis was making her so weak and she needed an operation in Berlin. It was bleak in Europe. Everything was so grey. But one thing cheered me up. A surprise visit from a family friend, Feroz. What are you doing here? He and my mother became friends at political rallies. I can't believe you came all this way. He kept her spirits up with his jokes. We had become close. But Indira's affections would have to wait. Her mother's condition had worsened and so traveled to Switzerland for more treatment. My father was able to come and be by her side in her last days. She died in February 1936. After her mother's death, Indira Gandhi sought solace from her father. I know Papu. I can't believe she's gone. How can we go on? <laughs> I must go back. So soon? Yes, I will come with you. By April, we were back in India. There was work to be done. Work replaced grief for 19-year-old Indira. She joined her father on his political tour of the country. My father became president of the National Congress, the political party associated with Mahatma Gandhi fighting for independence. I was with him for 6 months. I could taste the anticipation and growing power of the people. We were ready for independence. But rather than continuing to follow my father around India, 
He wanted me to go to university in England instead. I agreed and enrolled at the University of Oxford. But I had a stop to make in Paris first. There was someone I was dying to see again. This certain someone was Feroz Gandhi. He'd changed the spelling of his surname to emulate his idol, Mahatma Gandhi. Feroz and I came from different religious backgrounds. He was Parsi, which follows Zoroastrianism, and I was Hindu. My father and even my mother weren't happy about us spending time together. I ignored them. Although stubborn, she also prided herself on being a good daughter. And Dira would struggle to tell her family of her ultimate intentions with Feroz. <laughs> it was on the steps of the Basilica of Sacré-Cœur that we finally and definitely decided. Paris was bathed in soft sunshine and the whole city was swarming with people who were young at heart and in a holiday mood. Yes, I will. I was absolutely thrilled. Nobody made me as happy as Firoz. But I knew I couldn't share the news with anyone yet. They got engaged in 1937 and kept it secret for four years. I had agreed to get an education, but I despised the English hypocrisy, droning on and on about democracy while denying India. I wanted to go back home. By the time 1939 rolled round, Hitler had invaded Poland and the Second World War broke out. We were arriving at Piccadilly. <gasps> this could have been us. Feroz, I can't stand it here any longer. I should be at home with my father. Indira left university without finishing her degree in history. Feroz followed her back to India. I was going home. Feroz, myself and a friend took the ship to Bombay. I was in my early twenties and I was finding my voice. I gave the British aristocrats on board a piece of my mind. You pretend to want democracy and celebrate it in your own country. Then you cross the ocean and try to control everyone around you. There was a library on the ship. We thought it our duty to purge it of its horrendous pro-fascist books. I could not believe there were so many. I told them to throw everything overboard while I kept watch. Rebelling was thrilling. We arrived home in April 1941 and were determined to get married. Papa, it is such a relief to see you. I have some joyous news. Feroz and I... No, but Father, listen. We are not so different. We are going to marry. In marrying Feroz, I was breaking age-old traditions. It was an intercommunity and interreligious marriage. And it did raise a storm. It was exasperating. The whole world seemed to be opposed to my marriage to Feroz. Interfaith marriages were not common at the time and many thought it inappropriate for the daughter of such a prominent politician. Her father also resisted at first, but he eventually relented, and on the 26th of March, 1942, Indira Nehru became Indira Gandhi.
Her marriage, however, did not distract her from being by her father's side. We pushed for independence together. Yes! Yes! The British rule must end. We will be our own masters. As part of the Quit India movement, Indira was like her father's shadow, putting his needs and career above anything else. And the movement was gaining real momentum. Protests were being staged all over the country. The British government arrested more than 60,000 people by the end of 1942, including Feroz and Indira. I was sent to Naini prison in September 1942. I was glad, really. It was as if something was complete. My childhood, my teen years, and now my adult life were synonymous with the struggle for India's freedom. I was imprisoned for eight months. A year after Feroz and I were both released, our first son, Rajiv, was born. Then Sanjay came in 1946. I've never felt such love. To bring a new being into this world, to see its tiny perfection and to dream of its future greatness is the most moving of all experiences. When motherly bliss would have to take a back seat to a cause she and her family had been fighting for their whole lives. At the stroke of midnight, on the 15th of August, 1947, India gained independence from the United Kingdom. Indira Gandhi's father, Jawaharlal Nehru, became the first Prime Minister of a free India. I was so proud of my father. He helped bring us to this historic moment. And my role was to keep him going. Welcoming guests at Nehru's residence morphed into consulting with him on policies. Indira Gandhi began to accompany her father on state visits, first to China in 1954, and then the Soviet Union in 1955. Her father used to tell his colleagues to speak to Indu, his daughter, when they approached him with matters for Congress. Indira was well on her way to the top. But as her political career was growing, her personal life was suffering. Feroz grew jealous of my status and had begun a string of affairs, including with my cousin Lekha. I felt such shame. The rift between us never healed, but I tried to hide that from the public. I'm not really dressed for visitors. Okay, come in. You want me to join the Congress Working Committee? Well, I accept. In 1955, the committee believed that Indira would be easy to influence and would serve as a vehicle for their policies. They were mistaken. I asked to be elected to make sure people wanted me there. Two years later, I was elected to the Congress Central Election Committee. She knew how important it was to have the will of the people behind her. Her work with her father had taught her the power of popular will. In 1959, I became president of the Congress. We are the women of India. 
Don't imagine us as flower maidens. We are the sparks in the fire. It was such a proud moment for me. But how did Feroz react? Well, he exuded such hostility that poisoned the air. We were estranged for much of our marriage. Still, it came as a great shock when I received a phone call that he had succumbed to a heart attack. I was 42 when I became a widow. Four years later, I lost the other man in my life. Jawaharlal Nehru, India's first and longest-serving Prime Minister, died of a stroke on the 27th of May, 1964. It was the worst moment of my life. Amid the depression and feelings of despair, his colleagues asked if I would become a member of the Upper House. How could I? If anything, I needed a break. But she knew she couldn't walk away from this opportunity. Indira Gandhi became Minister of Information and Broadcasting in Lal Bahadur Shastri's government. But she found it hard to hold back and ignored her Prime Minister repeatedly. When Prime Minister Shastri died from a sudden heart attack in 1966, Indira was in prime position. Not everyone wanted me to fill Shastri's shoes. Some called me Gungi Guria or Dumb Doll. What did they know? I was nominated to be Prime Minister and voted in by the Syndicate. The Syndicate was originally formed to discuss the future of the country after Nehru's death. Together, members were the ultimate kingmakers in India. On the 24th of January 1966, Indira Gandhi became India's first female Prime Minister. The syndicate voted for her, believing she would be a puppet for their own agenda. They couldn't have been more wrong. My heart is full. I do not know how to thank you. As I stand before you, my thoughts go back to the great leaders, Mahatma Gandhi, my father, and Lal Bahadur Shastri. These leaders have shown the way, and I want to go along the same path. But I inherited a bruised economy. The Second Kashmir War with Pakistan, drought, high inflation. Well... I had to restructure the economy and get India out of poverty. Many regions were suffering famine after the droughts of 1965 and 66. It was my top priority to address the rice riots, where people did not have enough to eat and looted warehouses. In 1967, she travelled to the east of India and found out how enraged people really were. I'm here today in Odisha to speak plainly ahead of next week's elections. And how did they repay me? They threw stones at me and fractured my nose. But one can't let hecklers put you off. What insolence is this? Is this the way you're going to build the country? It wasn't just rowdy crowds that Indira Gandhi ignored. 
She overlooked many party members by nationalizing 14 banks to keep assets state-controlled in 1969. The old guard were infuriated. They put me on trial in absentia, but I was quicker than them. I selected my own cabinet, and we ran our own policies, successfully ignoring them. You should have seen the look on their faces. Contrary to our party's initial preconceptions, Indira Gandhi proved to be no pushover. I formed my own faction of Congress, called the Indian National Congress, and my rivals couldn't believe it. Congress was split into those who were with me and those who weren't. Indira Gandhi was unyielding and uncompromising. In March 1971, we won a two-thirds majority. Our main promise was to give the poorest 20% of Indians money each year to reduce poverty. This was my only concern. Garibi Hatao. Remove poverty became her slogan during her re-election campaign in 1971. It worked. More than 150 million people voted. It was me they wanted. With her landslide victory, Indira Gandhi turned her attention to the liberation of modern-day Bangladesh, which was then called East Pakistan. A certain U.S. president wasn't happy with how far she would go to achieve that, regardless of her perceived intentions. Hindus in East Pakistan were being slaughtered at home and were being forced to flee into India. So in November 1971, when I visited President Richard Nixon, I wanted to see whether he'd listened to my concerns. He instead fixated on supplying West Pakistan with weapons. Nixon was obnoxious. One month after her visit with the U.S. president, West Pakistan attacked nine Indian air bases in East Pakistan. Hello. Thank God. They attacked us. Now we can go in. This way, Indira Gandhi could plan an attack and not be seen as the aggressor. The U.S. Navy started to move their fleet to the Bay of Bengal to support West Pakistan. But we had the USSR on our side, and they moved their fleet too. We invaded Bangladesh and overwhelmed the Pakistani forces before U.S. troops could react. The West Pakistan forces have unconditionally surrendered in Bangladesh. Dhaka is now the free capital of a free country. This house and the entire nation rejoice. The announcement on the 6th of December 1971 was celebrated by Indians everywhere. The Prime Minister became very popular, many calling her Mother Indira. But in 1973, India endured another food crisis. And a couple of years later, a political crisis came knocking on the Prime Minister's door. Come in. What did you say? Rajiv, they can't think I'm guilty? It was ludicrous. Four years earlier, her rival Raj Narayan had accused her of electoral misconduct. In 1975, a judge finally handed down a ruling. It stated that Indira Gandhi should be unseated as Prime Minister. The Congress party had 20 days to make arrangements. Rajiv, get your brother. 
Sanjay, what should I do? I must resign. Wait. Perhaps that isn't the best course. I did what anyone who wants to protect their country would do. Or protect themselves. I asked the president to invoke Article 352, and he agreed. This gave me ultimate power regardless of court rulings, and I endowed that little hiccup. That's one way of putting it. Indira Gandhi's tactics shocked even her closest allies. My son Sanjay requested an appeal and organized huge rallies. He was a born leader. People had no choice. Attendance for government officials was mandatory. Indira Zindabad! Long live the Red Rose! India needed me, and I could not leave her. However, not everyone had my clear-sightedness. I found out that the opposition was mobilizing against me. Sanjay, listen. We need a list of everyone against me. You will see yourself when you're in my place that these moments are make or break. I persuaded President Fakhruddin Ali Ahmed what needed to be done. When a baby is stillborn, you shake it to make it come to life. India needed to be shaken up. In the early hours of the 26th of June, 1975, a state of emergency was declared in India. Indira Gandhi talked about what she called a widespread conspiracy. The conspiracy has been brewing ever since I began to introduce certain progressive measures of benefit to the common man and woman of India. The purpose of censorship is to restore a climate of trust. Or was it fear? Regrettably, we had to restrict some freedoms to get India back on track. My beloved Sanjay helped me turn up the heat. Now that's one way of putting it. The electricity to newspaper buildings was cut, political opponents were imprisoned, and journalism was censored for nearly two years. Sanjay, by now his mother's official advisor, was given more political control. His own businesses and political experience grew, while the rest of the country suffered. He helped me in the fight to abolish poverty. He formulated a family planning program to keep a check on the population. Family planning was a euphemism for a militant sterilization program that forced men to have vasectomies. School teachers were assigned quotas of men to recruit to be operated on. Otherwise, they'd be beaten. And Indira Gandhi seemed to ignore the suffering, giving her son the reins. I had to delay the 1976 elections until the emergency was under control. But of course, the will of the people is the backbone of democracy. In 1977, it was time to cleanse public life of confusion and reaffirm the power of the people. Indira Gandhi wanted to take advantage of a fragmented opposition. Against her son's advice, elections took place in March 1977. It cannot be. She made the wrong move. Defeated to Raj Narayan, of all people? Sanjay, how has this happened? The Janata Party had formed a coalition to get her and the Congress Party out. They succeeded 
and opened an investigation into her suspected wrongdoing during the emergency period. The police arrived at my home to arrest me. I cordially asked them for time to sort my affairs. And she didn't waste a minute. She changed into a white sari, contacted all of her allies as well as the press. She refused to leave unless she was handcuffed. She didn't get her way there. The two officers refused. I spent one night in jail. It was par for the political course. I refused the food and read a novel instead. And I must say, I slept quite soundly. The next day I was back at home. The charges were dropped. The whole affair reignited the passion of my supporters. Honestly, it played out very well. Unwittingly, her rivals had set the stage for her comeback. I formed the Congress I Party, I for Indra, and had Sanjay by my side throughout. He was a fast learner. In November 1978, I won my seat back. And on the 14th of January 1980, I was back in my rightful place, sworn in as Prime Minister. I have always been India's leader. For six months, she seemed to share the position with Sanjay. Far from being the apprentice, the now 34-year-old had his hands deep in the politics of India. He seemed to pick up where he left off during the emergency years. He was always by my side, helping the family maintain its power. But her son Sanjay would not be around for much longer. Something terrible has happened. I was in my office in New Delhi when the door flung open. Where is he? I raced to my boy. Oh no, it can't be. It can't be. <laughs> June 23rd. 1980. I will never forget that day. Sanjay and his flight instructor were killed in a plane crash after he lost control practicing loops. My son Rajiv lit Sanjay's funeral pyre. He had always preferred to keep away from politics, but now there was no other choice. He was stepping in during a turbulent time. Fundamentalism and tribalism were a huge problem. There were Hindu-Muslim riots across the country, but the most menacing threat came from the Sikhs. We have never been part of India, and our government silences our voices. We shall be silent no more. In 1984, that dismal man Jarnal Singh Bindranwale was turning heads. He had been a member of Congress, and young Sikhs were enthralled by his conviction. They followed his command to terrorize Hindus by decapitating cows and throwing their heads into Hindu temples. I took his threat to create a separate Sikh state very seriously. Bindaran Vale was based in the Golden Temple in Amritsar, Punjab, considered to be the most sacred of Sikh sites. My country was in turmoil. The Sikh separatists were gaining momentum and had turned violent against Hindus. Although Hindus made up the largest population, there were large numbers of Muslims in the far west, Christians in the east, and Sikhs in the north, Punjab. 
the Punjab is uppermost in all our minds. The whole country is deeply concerned. I cannot allow violence and terrorism in the settlement of issues. Those who indulge in such anti-social and anti-national activities should make no mistake about this. I appeal to all sections of Punjabis. Don't shed blood. Shed hatred. Binder Anwali had moved to the temple about two years earlier. Indira Gandhi watched, waited, and planned her attack. And then... In the first week of June 1984, commandos stormed the temple to remove Bindranwale and his followers. The operation was a success. It was a massacre. More than 1,000 pilgrims and hundreds of soldiers were killed in Operation Blue Star. It was a devastating raid that stuns Sikhs everywhere. Three days later, an attempt was made on the president's life. He wasn't hurt, but my fear grew for Rajiv and his family. I could not lose anyone else, so I made sure they were watched at all times. It was only them I worried about. I was not worried for myself. I had watched my parents die painfully in bed, and I would be happy to die on my two feet. For you, package delivered. One day, I received a top-secret file suggesting that I remove my Sikh cards. I was a leader of a democratic, not a military country, so I would never do that. They had been with me for years, and I trusted them. That turned out to be unwise. Indira Gandhi had ambushed the spiritual home of the Sikhs. She underestimated the anger and resentment the attack on the temple had created. I am not worried about dying. Every single drop of my blood will invigorate the nation and strengthen united India. On the 31st of October 1984, Indira left her residence just after nine o'clock in the morning and made her way down the garden path where her two Sikh bodyguards were waiting for her. Good morning, Inspector. Good morning, Captain. They opened fire with a submachine gun and a pistol. She was hit 30 times. She was 66 years old. I served until my dying breath. Nobody could take that away from me. I'm so proud of having spent my life working for the people. Not only that, but I prepared Rajiv to take over, so India would not suffer. Indeed, her son Rajiv stepped into power that very evening, ensuring the dynasty would continue. Rajiv would be prime minister for five years, but like his mother, he too was assassinated, killed by a bomb hidden in a basket of flowers. Indira Gandhi was the second longest-serving prime minister in India after her father. Today, her descendants hold positions of power. Her granddaughter and two grandsons all followed her into politics.
Hindsight is narrated by me, Charles Dance. This series was produced by Sout Podcasts. Their team is producer and editor Tala Alisa, associate producer Asant Samut. This episode is written by Louise Sinatum. Indira Gandhi is played by Evita Jai. Sound design by Tasia Kabani. Sound editing by Mahmoud Abunada. Research by Ramar Sabanek. Fact checking by Bayan Alaruri. Director Zain Ganma. Recording by TVC Soho Studios and the Voiceover Gallery. Additional research and fact checking by Al Jazeera. Script editing by Danilo Avaleshka. The senior copy editor is Hala Sudani. Joe DeFrias is the executive producer of Special Projects. Juan Carlos Van Meek is Al Jazeera's director of digital innovation and programming. Hindsight is a historical drama podcast. All dramatized scenes and dialogue are inspired by historical events and old interviews with people close to the subject.